I know some of you can't get enough PowerPoint. So if you're feeling PowerPoint withdrawal, I'll, I'll uh, try to attenuate that. That's only one reason I'm passing it out. The other is that I want to get to the Eightfold Path today. And, and isn't there something about how you can't hold more than seven items in your mind at the same time, something like that? <laughs> so, so we got the Sevenfold Path plus one. So this is sort of a visual aid. There shouldn't be any surprises on that. It's just, it's just for a visual reference. So we want to start with a uh, with announcements. There's got to be announcements. Please. So any other announcements? Okay. So it's gonna take me a little bit of time to get to this, a few minutes anyway, to get to the to the list. In Burma there are a couple of meditation masters that are known to people at Spirit Rock, Pau Aksaida, who's a a serious jhana practitioner and teacher, jhana being a, a word uh, uh, that's used to describe some very intense states of concentration and, and mental focus. He once told me that I couldn't even think, he asked, well, what's your practice? Well, Vipassana. He said, no, no, can't, can't even begin to do Vipassana without mastering all eight jhanas. Yeah, heavy jhana. And then you've got Utejaniya, who's got sort of a different um, perspective, which is choiceless awareness, where you sit, and sort of like uh, Shikantaza in the Zen tradition, just sitting. So which is, you know, these are both meditation masters from Burma. Who's right? What's, you know, the tradition brings us a lot of um, often conflicting versions of what the practice is and what the teachings are. And the question is, how do you know what, what's signal and what's noise in what comes to us? You know, the early texts have stories of miracles at birth, at the birth of the Buddha and things like that, which a lot of us don't quite take on board the way they, they would have been uh, uh, taken on some years ago. And, you know, the Buddha taught for 45 years, so he's got a bookshelf full of teachings that are like this big. You know, Jesus taught for three years, and he's got this much. You know. So sorting out the signal from the noise is a big deal. I think the Buddha anticipated this. There's a... There's a uh, a sutta, a small sutta, uh, where, called the peg, um, where the Buddha um, says it's, the Dharma is sort of like uh, the ringing of this drum called the summoner. And when the drum was built, it could be heard for, I don't know, a lot of leagues. I'm not sure what a league is, but it could be heard for many leagues. And then, of course, over time, it got old and cracked and it started to vibrate and they'd you know, tap these little wooden pegs into it to keep it. And after a while, there were more pegs in the drum than there were, than there was original drum, and you couldn't even hear it in the next room. He said, that's the way it's going to be with the Dharma. 
because over time people will come to prefer the teachings of poets and people who speak well and uh, ignore the teachings of the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, because they're hard and difficult. So how do we know? The Buddha said, I teach suffering in the end of suffering, or dukkha in the end of dukkha. Dukkha being the word that we translate as, as suffering. It has a, such a broad range of meanings. It means you know, all the resistance, everything from irritation and frustration and anger and displeasure, rage, loathing, disgust, all of the aversive. Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. And he articulated that insight. I mean, he didn't say, I teach this and then I teach you know, all the other metaphysical things, reincarnation and karma and mul you know, multiple lifetimes. I teach suffering in the end of suffering. Dukkha in the end of Dukkha. And he articulated his insight in the formula that we've come to know as the Four Noble Truths. I think contemporary scholars now uh, tend to agree that the phrase Four Noble Truths is something that was laid on later. It wasn't something that the Buddha used to identify his teachings. He would say, one comes to the understanding of the noble ones, such as suffering, such the origin of suffering, such the cessation of suffering, and such the path leading to the cessation. But the, the phrase Four Noble Truths has, has come to be uh, the way we refer to them. So even though it wasn't the Buddha's idea, uh, it's still common to use those terms. And the Eightfold Path, which is what I've, I've put together here on this, my, my PowerPoint slide, um, is the fourth of these, these uh, truths, these teachings. But it only makes sense, the reason why I'm bringing up the rest is that the, the Eightfold Path makes sense in terms of the remainder, the other three teachings. The first teaching, the truth of suffering, here's how it reads in the text translated into English. The noble truth of suffering, birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you cherish. That's, that's it. It's not a definition, it's a description of um, unpleasant experience. There isn't, there isn't a, a party favor on that list. Nothing that we'd order up for ourselves, but hey, we're here. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that none of us has missed out on any of those so far. You know, they all come with the territory. And, and to the extent that this is a truth, it's just the truth that life includes these things. These are what we experience as the unsatisfactory elements of our life. We don't like them. We work to make them go away. This is the first truth. And the Buddha said, understand this. Understand this uh, nature of suffering, the nature of our dissatisfaction. The second truth The origin of suffering. And so because it's phrased that way or translated that way, people often think that tanha, which is the word that he uses to describe the origin, causes suffering, causes the elements in that first truth, all the unpleasantness. But I understand it a little bit differently. The word he uses is tanha, and it, the word literally means thirst in Pali. Pali being the language that uh, the Buddhist teachings are recorded in. It describes a subjective feeling of, these, of this uh, kind of driven desire. The word is often translated as craving, but I think of it as, uh, the Buddha described it as an underlying tendency or a disposition it's a proclivity. 
It's um, uh, a tendency that we have to react in particular ways when those elements in that first truth show up. And he identified three, and I find it amazing because I'm going to say something about the neuroscience of this, but he identified this purely from the subjective experience, his subjective experience. He said there are three kinds of this tanha. Bhava tanha, which is uh, bhava becoming, to become something, which requires that you survive, that you last into the future to become something. We have an agenda, we have plans for ourselves, we have uh, ideas for our strategy for progressing in the world to make ourselves happy and make make what we care about um, uh, more prominent. Vibhavatanha, which is sort of the opposite. Make stuff go away. When it's unpleasant, that stuff in that first list, when it shows up, make it go away. And kamatanha, kama being the word for sensual pleasure. We navigate in terms of pleasant and unpleasant. We seek pleasant things. Anybody, I mean, it's not, this isn't magic. This is just how we, sort of how we work. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't come into the world with an instruction manual. We came with parents. And our bodies came with the instruction. So, I, you know, Tanha, he says, is an underlying tendency and it gives rise to greed, hatred, and delusion, which we can observe. We don't really observe Tanha all the time. It's not there all the time. It's hard to, uh, um, to spot it directly. Sort of like gravity. You can't spot gravity directly, but you can notice how much something weighs, or you can measure the rate of a falling object. You can see the manifestations of gravity. You can see the manifestations of tanha. Sort of a theory like gravity. Concept to account for greed, hatred, and delusion. And I think of tanha as um, sort of our evolutionary inheritance. Now, over the course of evolution, we have been cultured to uh, have a drive to survive and reproduce. Pretty much the most powerful drives in us. Survive and plan our future. Think of where we're going. How do we get there? How do we advance our agenda of surviving so that the next moment we're in better shape than we were? And of course, we don't stop doing that, the idea of satisfaction, it's like, you know, eating one meal and never being hungry again, you know, I mean, this is going to keep going on and on. Our body, our organism is, is designed to seek to improve things, to make things better. We've got this incredible computer in our head that enables us to plot and scheme with incredible subtlety. Look at you know, how we've succeeded in surviving as a species to the point where we're overrunning the planet. And of course, evolution has given us markers for how to, how to guide ourselves, pleasant and unpleasant. You know, we, we do things that are pleasant. We want things that are pleasant. And of course, generally, those are things that help us out. Fat and sugar calories to help us survive. Well, you know, that may not be as hard to access them now as it was, but at a time, uh, you know, pleasant, pleasantness and unpleasantness. These are our guides that, that uh, we have inherited in, in our organisms as part of our uh, evolutionary legacy. So when unpleasantness arises, any of those elements in that first truth arise, what happens? Vibhavatana, aversion, anger. And we add on to the unpleasantness another layer of unpleasantness. And this stuff is, may happen in our minds, but it's, it's unpleasant. One of the best examples that I, I know of, of just know how purely mental this dukkha is. A friend of mine was at work on Friday. Her boss came by her cubicle and said to her, four o'clock, says, Monday morning, first thing, we got to talk. 
and then, and then he went home. Imagine her weekend. Turned out to be okay, but her weekend was a mess, right? All in her head. It's all, it's the add-on and that add-on mixed in with the unpleasantness for the first place, in the first place, dukkha. We make things worse. Well, we don't make things worse. Our reactivity makes things worse. Adds on and increases the unpleasantness of our experience. The Buddha said it's not necessary. Third truth, the cessation of, of, of dukkha, he says, is the cessation of tanha. So in effect, dukkha is a composite, a compound thing that is a mixture of unpleasantness and our reaction to it. And he says, if you take away the reaction to it, you're left with the unpleasantness, but you haven't made it worse, made it better. That may be the most we can hope for sometimes, is to not make it worse. And actually, trying to make it better is problematic. You can try it, you can do your best, with pure intention to make things better and things can go south. Doctor can lose a patient. Not that he, you know, do no harm. Don't intend harm. Because you can't always be sure that even your best intentions will play out the way you want. So the Buddha found that the only really reliable way of not making things worse, or of making things better, is to not make them worse. And the fourth truth, the fourth teaching, is that the way of, the way of uh, living without making things worse is the Eightfold Path. It's described as the path, and it's, some, it's described as the goal. It's actually both. Different ways, um, it's, it's, it's both in slightly different ways. Let's say first that it's not a one-fold path. You know, when I first started practicing, the idea was, you know, medit- it's about meditation. And we want to get to a good meditation. So you got to clean up your act. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. You know, the precepts, clean up your act, and then you'll get a good meditation. You know, right, right view, these impermanence. Anicca dukkha anatta. You got that? Got it. The idea was to get to meditation, but the but the it's an eightfold path. It's a complete path in all elements. So in my my group in Davis, we like to think of it as like the eightfold basketball. So here's an eightfold basketball. It's brown. It's a sphere. It's made of rubber. It's got dimples on it. It's got black stripes around it. It's about 15 inches across. Weighs a couple pounds. Filled with compressed air. Is that eight? What? It bounces. it bounces, yeah, okay. You were counting. I, I'm impressed. I was trying to go too fast to be spotted. So, eightfold path, but you, you have to have all those. It's one basketball. You can't play with just the brown. No. And the eightfold path is a complete way of being. And we often think of these elements as separate, but they're, they're not. They describe a unified way of being without suffering. And I, often we, we relate to the elements of the path uh, as, as, as separate things and distill them, distill them out. Um, so we get uh, satipatthana practice, which is, is the foundations of mindfulness, following the breath. I think of some of these practices, we get people doing jhana practice, and we do precept practice. And I think of some of these things as uh, like finger exercises. Like when when you're learning to play an instrument. If you play a piano, I don't play the piano, but if I did, it would look like this. 
Um, you know, you play the scales, you learn how to, I, I've seen them, I can't, I'm not, you do with your fingers, and you know, you learn the finger exercise, it's not the same as the music. So the practice of the Eightfold Path are like technical finger exercise, like batting practice, which is different than stepping up to the plate in a game situation. So the music of the Dharma is the Eightfold Path. The, the, uh, not as finger exercise, but as the art of the Dharma, the life of the Dharma, the expression of the Dharma. Living without, without making things worse, without adding more greed, hatred, and delusion into the mix. I'm going to go through the elements of the path because this is really what we know. This is the Buddha's program. You know? Suffering and the end of suffering, here's how to deal with that. These eight elements. So, you know, most of, most of my work these days is centered on these elements, one or the other of them. Ayakema, who was one of my early teachers, who was a a German woman who became a nun. Um, she said, anything beyond the Four Noble Truths is excess dharma. <laughs> um, and this is, this is the Buddha's program. So just going, going down the list here, let's just read, for some of you who aren't familiar with them, let's just read right down. Um, the, the, uh, I include the Pali words, uh, that are translated, so the yellow box, oh, they're different shapes and different colored backgrounds, and um, I want to take a look at them from a couple of different perspectives. Right view is the first, and this is usually, this is the way that they're presented in the text. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The word right is used with caution. I think the elements of the path here only exist as part of the Eightfold Path because they are related to the task of abandoning tanha and freeing us from dukkha. So right view, for example, I have a view, a monetary view. We should increase interest rates. That's right view. And wrong view is we should decrease interest rates. It's not maybe a view, it may be an understanding, but it's not what the Buddha was talking about. Right view would be the understanding, the view, that enables us to live without making things worse. Samasati is not the same as Satipatthana. And this is my, my view. Now, Satipatthana is the foundations of mindfulness. We learn to pay attention to our breath and to learn to focus our attention on our present moment experience, our feeling tone, our mind states, the objects in our, in our attention. But Samasati is about... Hmm, the ending of dukkha. It's about recognizing tanha when it arises, greed, recognizing greed, recognizing our intention. So actually, samasati is a way of monitoring our intention in real time as we go through the day. It's not the same as monitoring our breath, but the breath finger practices. And then our life becomes the venue for the music of the Dharma, for the art of the Dharma. So Sama is translated, it's right on the prayer wheel up the hill, they, it's wise mindfulness. Right? Um, sometimes people call it skillful. Um, but really it's about, uh, Sama means appropriate for, for the abandonment of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
you know, for a lot of us, when we come to Buddhist study and practice, the meditation is the central focus. But the Buddha says, right view is first. One of right view will then have right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood down the list. One of wrong view, wrong intention, etc. Right view is first. I want to think a little bit about this because what is what do we mean by a view? And what makes it what makes it right? Um, I think most generally a view, I mean we use different words to describe this. It could be it's the cognitive knowing, it's the map we have of our experience and our understanding. What is the world made of? What is it about? What's going on? Where am I? This is what our brain is designed to predict. That's what makes us more better to survive. We can predict what's going to happen, and we, the brain works in particular ways. It works with nouns and verbs. It's a practical tool. Right view, right understanding, right story, right narrative. No. Right idea, right knowledge. Our knowledge is not the same as the knowledge of people before, and presumably people will become more sophisticated and we will look primitive. Not to ourselves, but, you know, we sort of take ourselves a little more seriously. And Wes Nisker says, you know, we share 40% of our DNA with a banana. It's time to get over ourselves. <laughs> we, take our, we take our views and our understandings pretty seriously. So it's the cognitive map. Sometimes I think of it like the map on the GPS. You know, it's, our, it's a 3D, uh, multi-time temporal map of what's going on. And it's often conceptual. We use, we use concepts and language, but there's a level of understanding that is not even, we can't, we can't articulate it. You know how to ride a bike. You have an understanding, perhaps, of how to ride a bike or how to catch a ball if somebody throws it to you. Describe how to ride a bike. Can you articulate that in concepts? Try to describe the, the sensation the difference in the sensation between the in-breath and the out-breath. Put it in words. Some of this stuff we just can't articulate. That doesn't mean that we don't know it. And there's a way, there's a level of implicit understanding. Roger Federer doesn't sit there and say, the ball is coming over the net at such and such a speed. He doesn't do mental calc, he just acts. His knowledge of, of tennis is implicit. It's built in. We can walk into a room and we can feel that it's dangerous. What, what is the clue? Well, is it the color of the walls? Probably not. Is it the decibel level of the conversation? Probably not. But somehow there are things that trigger associations in our, in our brain and the, the sense of danger is something that, you know, conjured by the brain. You can't actually put your finger on it. Just feel uneasy. So right understanding can be implicit as well as explicit. Buddha talks about the distortions of perception. It's the word vipalasas. And they're pretty simple. Classically, right understanding is knowing about impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the emptiness of self, or not self, which is just such an awkward English construction. And the distortions of perception, there are four of them. To see stability and permanence in what is not stable or permanent. 
to see the potential of satisfaction in what cannot possibly be satisfying in the end. can't be because everything is changing. So if something were totally satisfying, it's downhill from there. Because <laughs> it's going to change. And the insubstantiality, and we think the getting a hold of this, absorbing whatever that essential element is will fill us up and make us feel good. The insubstantiality. And the fourth is interesting. The fourth distortion is to see beauty in what is inherently not beautiful. It's a, another version of beauty being in the eye of the beholder, but there's a deeper, there's a deeper thing here. You know, we project onto the world our experience of it. So we think sugar is sweet, right? Anybody think sugar is sweet? Sugar's not sweet. It's just a pile of chemicals. Sweet's what's happen, what happens in your mouth. It's when it's an interactive thing. And so we attribute to a particular object qualities that are not uh, its own. So the opposite of right view is not wrong view. It's not like raising the interest rates is right view, you know, or voting democratic is right view. Uh, you know, it's not. The opposite of right view is delusion. I, I was watching the, the Big Short the other day. Fabulous. And it comes up with, it's really fun. It's really fun and funny. And they come up with these epigraphs in the middle, you know, every once in a while. And one came up that just Mark Twain, there's a quote of Mark Twain saying, It's not what we don't know that gets us in trouble, it's what we know for sure that ain't so <laughs> that gets us in trouble. And of course, we think that our understanding is the way things are. We think generally, you know, we're not too far wrong. But neuroscience is pretty clear that accuracy is not what our perceptions and understanding is about. It's about survival. It's about practicality. We tend to believe our maps. And then when things don't go according to the way our maps and expectations go, oh my gosh, dukkha, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, what we don't expect. We live in a, in a conceptual mirage. We live in our, in our thought dreams, really. We don't pay attention to our body. The Buddha made a big deal about mindfulness of the body as a practice. All, all four texts that, that deal with, with mindfulness include mindfulness of the body, including one that's specifically mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of breathing, which is sensations in the body. Because we usually don't pay attention to the body unless it's hurting, and then we want it to go away. The Bhava Tanha kicks in and we got aversion and anger. Right view is the first, and everything follows from right view. The recognition that because of the uh, emptiness and uncertainty of all of our experience and the impossibility of having it satisfy ourselves, we come to recognize that um, unskillful effort is a waste of time. We want to evolve our understanding so that the rest of the path can unfold and we can respond more skillfully. Right view is the first. Right intention is the second. And classically, right intention is taught to be renunciation. That's the word that's, that's used, uh, Sama Sankhava, which is translated as renunciation. Abandoning tanha not taking the bait. And renunciation, you know, we think, well, we're going to renounce anger, we're going to renounce greed, or abandon. I guess I, I prefer the word abandon. Renounce has got some aversion in it. 
little bit of, you know, abandoned anger. But, you know, we're not actually relating to the, to the mental state. You should, I, use, I use this, uh, I, I like the, the metaphor of the moth and the flame. The moth sees the flame. The flame is bright and warm. The moth loves bright, bright and warm, and it, it doesn't see past the flame. It doesn't, everything else is dark, and it flies right in and is toast, or whatever moth toast is. <laughs> And we are like, that metaphor applies to how we relate to any object of desire or aversion. It, be, we, it, it becomes, you know, it's fixated, our attention becomes fixated. We reach for it or we push against it. The moth doesn't see its own proclivity for bright and warm. If it did, it might, be, it might say, you know, that looks pretty good, but I know where that's going and just not take it up. Mindfulness practice gives, that, gives us that opportunity to observe our own tendencies playing out and to step back, to not take the bait. Renunciation involves not just abandonment of the desire, but also of the object of desire. We have to change our understanding. What, what determines our understanding. If we think that getting that thing is, is essential to our happiness, we're going to use all the computing power of this brain to plot and scheme to help us uh, survive better. Make the connections we have to connect and use the ideas we have to use and figure out how to move in that direction. The other side of right intention are the Brahma-viharas. These are the mind states of awakened beings. Now this is not the, the idea about it, about the Brahma-viharas in the tradition. In the, in the, the Theravadan tradition generally holds that the Brahma-viharas don't get you any farther than the Brahma realms. I think that, you know, at the time of the Buddha, the concept of Brahma-vihara, the abode, the living place, vihara, of Brahma, the, the, the primary god, the chief of the gods, to, to live with Brahma, that was the highest attainment imaginable by someone at that time. The Buddha, Buddha met with Brahmins who were saying, we're trying to find our way to Brahma, and the Buddha would say, well, your teacher know Brahma? No. Well, how about his teacher? No. Well, he's the blind leading the blind. Nobody. Well, I'll tell you how to how to attain that that goal. And he talked about the four the four psychological states. Now, Bhikkhu Bodhi has told me that Brahmaviharas are just psychological states, and Nibbana is something transcendent, otherworldly, beyond our ability to know or experience, and I'm sort of not quite sure what that is, I can understand the Brahma-viharas as psychological states, equanimity, which is, a, which is an active principle. It's a, it's a verb. It's the ability to be present with pleasant and unpleasant without grasping or, or aversion. One of my one of my big shifts in my understanding was when uh, a British scholar, but John Peacock, wrote on the the whiteboard at uh, the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies: Nibbana equals Upeka. Nibbana is equanimity, the ability to live equanimously with what arises. And then there are the the state meta the to to regard our experience and the beings we meet with friendliness. Metta is a derivation of, of the word mitta, friendly. And to resonate with the suffering and joy of others, compassion, or mudita, 
resonant, the empathetic joy experienced by others. We cultivate the Brahma Viharas and abandon, abandon the uh, the kalesas, the the the, uh, the motivations that make things worse, that are rooted in our sense of self. The Brahma Vihara is not. You know, if if uh, now if we learn to recognize the impulses of of um, greed and hatred, and can just we find, just step back from them. One of the metaphors the Buddha uses, like a, shake, a snake sheds his worn-out skin, we will just abandon these things. When my granddaughter was nine, she was she loved the American Girl dolls. They were these big dolls that, that had characters from uh, the past. They were interesting. Uh, Characters. They all were dealing with some kind of uh, suffering in life at a different time period, a different place. She was nine. She loved them. Now she's sixteen. Not so much. You know, she's thinking about other things. Not that it's not that the dolls changed, but things changed. She just lost interest. So if you reach a point where you recognize that. Chasing after the, you know, doing everything you can to get the promotion, spending years for the, save up for the Tesla, whatever you think will make you happy. Once you recognize, you know, yeah, signing the papers and driving off the lot may be great, but you know, in a couple of weeks, the car may not change. You're going to be different. You're going to want something else. Satisfaction, not permanent. So we abandon greed and, and aversion and take up the Brahma Viharas because they're not rooted they're not rooted in in self. We come to right speech, right action, right livelihood. Now, in my view, this is this is what this is the fruit of the practice. To be able to live without dukkha. So the Buddha says right intention, or right understanding is the first, but really what we want to do is live to be able to speak, act, and assemble a life without suffering in, embedded in it. Without making things worse. And the practice you know, sort of the finger practice is to start with the precepts, and we start with them. You know, and that the simplest level: don't kill, don't, uh, don't steal, don't engage in harmful sexuality, don't, don't lie, and no drinking. And we can practice that for a while. You know, I thought this were pretty broad brush: don't kill. You know, this doesn't really; it's not a heavy problem for most of us. But I've been doing a lot of work at Folsom Prison, and I, I was working with a guy who, a huge guy uh, from uh, Samoa, about six foot six, 250. And you know, was, you know, you, you know he's serious because he's wearing these, these glasses, and you only get to keep your glasses if nobody can take them away. <laughs> and he, his problem is when he gets scared, he loses control, and he's so big. And he's described, he's after, I've been working with him for about eight weeks, a couple of months. And he described the situation. He was in the yard, and things started to go a little squirrely, and he was about to get involved, and he thought, oh, no, I'm going to kill another one. And he said, I don't want to do that. And he, he stopped and walked away. That's abandoning those impulses that come up. So don't kill may not be irrelevant to everybody, you know, as a basic, as a, as a basic finger exercise. You know. So we, we think don't harm, you know, don't, don't harm. But really you can't be sure that what you're going to do is not going to be harmful. A doctor does a, a surgery and things go south. It wasn't his intention, but harm can happen. It's don't intend harm.
the word actually in the precepts, in the Pali, um, chanting, panati pata, which means not to strike at. So it's a gesture of the heart, not to strike at. It's not don't steal, although that's a great place to start. Don't take what's not freely given if you need help. You know. But what about a gun from a child? You want to take that, even if the child says no, right? Car keys from a drunk. I mean, you don't grasp. You know, it's the gesture of the heart. Don't speak falsely. Well, you know, if the Nazis knock on the door and ask if Anne Frank is home, you want to lie as convincingly as you can. To have a rule that applies in all circumstances doesn't take into account the circumstances. So right speech, right action, right livelihood are transactional, depend on the context. What's, what's right in one context may not be right. Right, in the sense of being able to attenuate or eliminate more unsatisfactoriness, more dukkha. Not make things worse. Right, right. So the you know precept practice, finger exercises, but at the end, it's ongoing mindful attention. Right effort is the next one. And classically, right effort is similar in a lot of ways to um, right intention which it makes sense. I mean, you're going to basically, uh, effort is going to apply energy in the service of what? Your understanding and the intention that's rooted in your understanding. All these are rooted in your understanding. Classically, it's cultivate the wholesome, sustain the wholesome that is already developed and present. Abandon the unwholesome that's arisen and keep the unwholesome that hasn't arisen from arising. You know, that's basically abandon tanha. Abandon the products of vibhava tanha. Step back from them. Don't take the bait, the object, as a bait. And sustain the Brahma-viharas. Cultivate the Brahma-viharas and abandon the kalesas. Um, and it involves, it involves our relationship to the objects as well, not just to the, to the state. Pretty important to make sure that you're doing, that you're turning the gain up, applying the effort in the service of what's going to attenuate suffering and not on what's going to make things worse. Um, anger, resistance. I think in this political context is so handy. But maybe the maybe the response is assist and not resist. Samasati. Interesting, you know, sama, the samasati, as I said, is I understand it as different from satipatthana. That's an outlier opinion. No. But it's it's mine. And I'm sticking to it. It's my story. I'm sticking to it. I think that samasati, right mindfulness, the mindfulness that's part of the Eightfold Path, is about mindfulness of intention. And it's about that. And it's mindfulness. It's caring. There's the element of caring. Metta has got to be in there because it's about the ending of dukkha, the ending of suffering. I think it's mindful. Mindful attention, caring attention to our, to our intention and our experience, what's going on, to recognize what's going on and uh, enable us to respond more appropriately. Well, of course, that depends on our understanding. I don't actually see... Um, I don't see meditation in this. Mindfulness, in this case, is mindful on the street, in your life. We practice mindful, cultivating the, our ability to be mindful. 
to the point where it becomes implicit, like Roger Federer's serve. We just maintain mindfulness in our day-to-day as we're walking around. That, I would think, samasati, samasamadhi, right concentration, often interpreted as, you know, the cultivation of the jhanas, mental absorptions, keeping your mind still. And I, in, my, in my understanding, finger exercises. What we want, this is the meditation element. Samadhi is the word that's used to describe meditation frequently. We want to cultivate stability. And jhana practice certainly helps supercharges mindfulness practice. So these eight elements work together. They're all just aspects of this, not that they work together. We see, we refract a life that's lived without suffering, without making things worse through these prisms, and we see uh, intention. So I've, I've broken these out. You can look, you, I've got different shapes and different colors. So that commonly, um, it's broken into, or traditionally, into three groups. And I tried to represent it that by the color of the text. So Samaditi and Samasankhava, those are right intention, right view, are in blue. These are considered the wisdom elements. And then right speech, right action, right livelihood are regarded as the, uh, the sila elements, the elements of ethical practice, behavior. And the last three are considered the samadhi elements, the meditation elements, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. But you can also look at it a little differently. You can look at it, I've I've got right view in a box and everything else as, um, in what do you call those, rounded boxes? (laughs) There's a technical term for it, I'm sure, in... in, uh, PowerPoint, PowerPoint speak. So you could say right view comes first and everything flows from right view. You can break it into four parts. You can say uh, right view is separate from intention, speech, action, and livelihood, which flow directly from view. Intention and action are the... the, um, the volitional appearance of our understanding. So I have those with nothing in the background. And right effort I've got in green, holding it a little bit differently. And samasati and samasamadhi, Achan Chah used to say, he'd hold up a stick or a pen, he'd say, meditation is like this. This end, mindfulness, this end, concentration. They go together. It's part of the, the same. So I put them with the pink background. You could, you could also, I, I wasn't quite sure how to show the similarities between right intention and right effort. But basically what I wanted to do is to highlight different ways of looking at this eightfold path, this, eight, this basketball, different ways of looking at it to highlight different aspects about these elements. Because the more deeply we understand these elements, the more we can deploy our skills that we develop through our practice in, in living the music of the Dharma, the art of the Dharma. The, the, the life of the Dharma is an art. The Buddha says the task that's associated with the Eightfold Path is to cultivate the, ta- the path. Cultivate right view. It's not just, you know, impermanence check, dukkha check, emptiness check. Cultivate our understanding, deepen it from an explicit understanding to an implicit, so it's as deeply embedded in our being as, you know, Roger Federer's backhand, which is really pretty, <laughs> and pretty, pretty, pretty devastating. So let me, let me uh, just end with the music of the Dharma and see what kinds of comments or thoughts or questions 
or disputes, because this is, like I say, this is an, an outlier opinion. Please. Um, it's interesting how, as I'm moving along the path, I keep getting similar messages from like public radio, and then the, the thing that came in on the Daily Own, just like, okay, you know, I've got a theme going here. Um, you were talking about neural pathways, and one of the things that I've been, I don't, I hate to say the word struggle. Actually, I hate to say the word hate. Um, <laughs> struggle with the word hate. Yeah. The way my computer works, I, I do the attention deficit dance. I mm -hmm. And so I found a, a therapist who is a Buddhist and also specializes in ADHD. And, and the right concentration for me almost needs to be up at the top. I, I have a really difficult time with um, sure. distraction. And I've done the therapy and I've done the medication and I've done all of that, which on a surfacey kind of level helps with the symptoms. But uh, Wallace's book, uh, The Attention mm -hmm. Revolution, has been, to me, it's like, oh my God, there's sure. hope. There's hope to rewire, set up new synapses, new pathways. And honestly, for the first time in my life, the meditation is, is like taking root or, you know what I mean? I do, and I think, I think one of the things you're, you're illustrating here is you've an understanding of the path. Your underst each of our understanding of the path is gonna be a little different and for you, your understanding, so we're talking about right understanding still, in order to come to, to think that what you've got to work on is stability and, and concentration, that's an understanding that guides your intention you know, towards, towards behavior. So much more sure. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the things that we think are qualities of ourselves are just habits and things that we can adjust. Uh oh, I see. Oh, you're okay. Please. Um, sure. Um, so one of the things that I've been uh, curious about. Uh, I'm sure, like everybody's very aware of how prevalent, specifically mindfulness is, especially in the United States over the past uh, 20 years, and especially now with like everyone, everyone who's like hip doing yoga and all that. Um, but then you, you, you've talked about it as being all part of the same basketball, all parts of the eightfold path as being part mm -hmm. of one greater thing. So, how do you feel about this? About, sorry. Uh, <laughs> How do you feel about people divorcing mindfulness from the rest of the Eightfold Path? Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I teach uh, at Folsom Prison. It's a maximum security facility. I work with guys in solitary. And um, in that context, it's a mental health context, and I'm not allowed to talk Buddha Dharma Sangha. Hmm. But I found that you can talk, um, you can talk the Dharma in English, in street English. Uh, you know, so it's not it's not necessary to use the the Pali text. You can say, um, my interpretation of the first truth, shit happens. <laughs> I mean, just look at the list there, and the second truth we usually make it worse. You know, third truth you don't have to. Fourth truth here's how. Right, right view. But be realistic. Right intention. Don't be stupid. Be smart. And speech, action, livelihood, don't make things worse. It takes effort. Practice. You've got to practice. And you've got to cultivate the mind. The Eightfold Path, you know, the Buddha says, practice the good, abandon the unskillful, and cultivate the mind. So I think it's possible to not use all the Pali stuff and still... It comes along now. Stephen Batchelor thinks that uh, just the in, that mindfulness itself will massage the psyches of the culture, the psyche of the culture, and generally tend to move people in uh, a more skillful direction, in, in the direction that the Buddha had in mind. 
Um, I think that's probably, I, I agree with him, but I sort of think that just leaving it to mindfulness is sort of like, you know, the inf people not typewriters? <laughs> the infinite, the story of the infinite monkey, it's an infinite number of typewriters, and you give them an infinite amount of time, and they'll write all of the uh, great works of Western literature. But we don't have infinite number of time. So that's why teaching becomes really important, because a good teacher will point in the right and say, pay attention to this. Notice, can you stop your thinking? I mean, you can, you can get it. So um, I think that I, I, don't, I don't mind. I think that anything that moves people in the right direction and attenuates their dissatisfaction and pain in the world, you know, that's, that's fine. So that's sort of what I think about that. Thank you. Yeah. Please. Um, just when you were mentioning the things that you're not allowed to do, yeah. <laughs> we're just wondering what you meant by, uh, sorry, I'm a little sick, um, by harmful sexuality. I'm sorry? By harmful sexuality. That's the, that's the way the, the um, well, you know, actually the precept, the language of the precept, uh, kamesu michichara, kamesu kama, means sensual misconduct, not sexual misconduct. It's, it has come to mean sexual misconduct. I think, you know, what did the Buddha face? He faced a bunch of 18-year-old monks. <laughs> you know, so it became you know, more uh, harmful sexuality, sexuality that causes damage to others and oneself. You know, it's a, you know, sexual energy is such a powerful, it's like survival. You know, it's a, just a powerful drive, it's a, a motivation uh, that um, Oh, it's hard to resist. And managing that energy skillfully is difficult. And, and I could talk about the... About, but, so it's misconduct that causes uh, suffering. Conduct that is done in the pursuit of sensual uh, pleasure. And of course, you know, We've been cultured by evolution to seek what is pleasant, what is pleasurable. Is that, is that helpful at all? Yeah. Please. I wonder, though, is it good to... I wonder, the, I wonder though, if it's good to denounce those pleasures. Like to denounce them? Well, not denounce them, but to um, not I would them, say indulge I, them, I guess. I would say that... Um, it's not a matter of good or bad. The Buddha was asked once about, uh, you know, somebody came and said, all oh, these monks and nuns, pretty impressive. They look pretty cool. Uh, what about any lay followers? Got any lay followers who get the idea? And the Buddha said, not just a few. I've got hundreds, thousands. And he said, and he described lay followers who were stream enterers, in effect. And he described them as enjoying sensual pleasures. You know, the, the, and, and also being independent in the teacher's dispensation, knowing for yourself. Really important. But I've, I don't think there's anything wrong with sensual pleasures. It's if you have no choice, if you see the flame and you fall right in, you can't resist or you get angry. You know, if the object becomes bait that you grasp at or push away without mindful reflection. So it's not, it's not, no, good and bad are not the dimensions there. It's what's going to lead you to suffering. You know, there's nothing wrong with creme brulee. <laughs> Actually. Anything else? Anybody? Well, thank you guys for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.